0: I'm just gonna pull up Birdman so I can name actors like I know who they actually are. Oh, Oh. look, a
1: guest who can prepare. How beautiful. Oh,
0: wait, I forgot. Birdman was also a rapper.
2: Welcome to, to the Home Viewing. I'm John.
1: And I'm Bethany.
2: And what is Home Viewing?
1: I thought you were going to do it this
2: time. <laughs> I guess I'll do it. It's a podcast where we watch all of our movie library from A to Z. About time to Zombieland.
1: Oh, you were just going to say the title. Okay.
2: Yeah. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. Uh, what do we watch this week? Birdman. Yes. And who do we have here with us this week? Birdman himself. (laughs) Michael Keaton is here? Yes. (laughs) It's the drummer for the Organ Machines. It's Chris. Who's that band? Oh, it's the one from
0: your intro. (laughs) 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 I forget how literally anyone would know what you were talking about. (laughs) Did you forget what you (laughs) were I did for a split second, yeah.
2: (laughs) What's the Organ Machines up to lately?
0: We're gonna hopefully record soon. That's the plan right now.
2: Should we get into the movie?
0: Yeah. Let's do it.
2: Okay. It has been about a week since we watched this movie, so it might take a second. I mean, let's let's just do what worked and what didn't work. Let's do let's do it like usual. Well, why
1: don't you start, then?
2: How do I put it? I feel like there's a lot to say about this movie, but I feel like a lot of it has already been said. Well, you
1: gotta say something. By people who get that's, this movie better. That's the point of our podcast.
2: The point of our podcast is to say something. I mean... I mean, I can start with the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's talk about the music. So, the,
0: the first funny anecdote from watching this movie for me, because <laughs> I went to this movie completely all I knew about this movie was you guys had told me that basically the whole soundtrack is drums
2: which is not entirely accurate because I forgot they used like classical pieces and yeah stuff, it's,
0: that was, I was gonna get to that because I thought that was kind of mm-hmm. I like the choices they made for that but the it was funny because while we were watching it like maybe 10 minutes in the movie uh, I told Bethany that it sounded just like if they had taken everything out of Pat Metheny songs except the drums and then I looked up later who the drummer was I was like, oh cool, it's the Pat Metheny drummer. Okay, sweet. So that was kind of interesting. No, I digged it. I, I digged the um, the way they did the drums. I actually did a lot of I, I did a lot. Of, I looked at a lot of interviews that Antonio did after I watched it, and a, a lot of the stuff that he said they did for the soundtrack was like pretty cool stuff drum wise. Like most of the songs, the drums are like completely out of tune. If you didn't notice, they're like completely mm-hmm. detuned really badly. Mm-hmm. The like that's what makes them feel so more like in the room. Because they originally did it with really tuned drums and it sounded too good, so they basically just like tuned them really, really bad and played like that. And there's a lot of really trashy symbols and stuff. It was really cool.
2: Yeah, it's really cool. Something that I liked about it a lot, just uh, in my reading about the production, this movie was uh, directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu, one of the three amigos of Mexican cinema. And
1: Which one is he? The salsa, the guaca, the, uh, the cheese dip.
2: He's one of the
0: three amigos. <laughs> of- <laughs> So someone who doesn't know what that means, what is what is the three amigos for real though? Okay, the
2: three amigos of Mexican cinema are the three directors slash writers who really kind of put Mexican cinema on the map. Okay. starting in the nine days and they, the nineties, the nineties, starting in the nineties, <laughs> and uh, they are Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I figured he was one of them. Okay, Alfonso Cuarón. I
0: know the name, but I can't think of what he did.
2: So the one you that everyone probably knows him best for is either Gravity or realistically Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban.
0: Which is the best one.
2: Yes. For sure. I fully agree with you. Yeah, for sure. Like, from a filmic perspective, completely, like, the way that the themes intertwine and the story intertwines, which is something that Alfonso Cuaron is really good at, which we'll get more into when we get to an Alfonso Cuaron movie, which we have two of. Mm. Well, three, I guess, technically, if you include the Prisoner of Azkaban. And then Alejandro González Iñárritu, who is the third. And this, he was the, uh... One of the first of the three to win Best Director, I think, because all three have won Best Director in the past uh, like five or six years or so okay. for yeah. Birdman, um, <clears throat> Gravity, and Shape of Water, respectively. Birdman was, I think, kind of an upset when it ended up winning Best Picture at the Oscars. Um,
0: I remember hearing a lot about it when it came out, and I just assumed it was a superhero movie, and I had never seen it until this year. And I mean, it was kind of a superhero.
2: It was a little bit of a superhero movie. That's
0: literally what I went into this thinking it was. Because I, I made sure I didn't know anything about it. So when it started being about Broadway, I was like, is this guy just fighting crime on the side? <laughs> was like, Why is an actor? Until I saw the poster, I was like, oh, okay. It's, like, it's basically if they did a movie about... I mean, it's like a Christian Bale biopic if you like was only yeah, well, the Dark Knight. In a way, it's in a way it's a
2: Michael Keaton biopic a little bit though because Michael Keaton played Batman. in The I didn't think about that. Until yeah, much. which is why I think Michael Keaton was such inspired casting for this movie. Some people still think he's the best Batman. But. I mean, I understand why they think that, but that's probably because <laughs> he, he was been, the original. He would have
0: been better if they didn't do the third one.
2: Listen, I have a controversial opinion right here.
0: What?
2: I think. Ben you think a- George Clooney was the no, best I mean, <laughs> <laughs> You can say it, it's okay. I think, I think Ben Affleck may have been the best Batman, if we're being honest. I thought his Batman was terribly written, but I thought he inhabited the oh. character of Bruce Yeah, Wayne no, Batman that's my favorite
1: Batman. I on purpose
0: didn't watch those movies yet. Well, you see, I gotta make you watch them. That's now. fair.
1: Oh, man. Now I need <laughs> I think to watch I Superman versus Batman.
0: I thought Christian Bale was a really good Bruce Wayne. But uh, I, okay, Batman. I liked
2: him as Bruce Wayne. He was he Chris like Bale looks like a Wayne. Playboy though. It works so But you well, see, but... we didn't see enough of Bruce Wayne inhabiting like the Playboy. That's very role. true. I liked you see, I kind of liked like Bat Batflex Bruce Wayne <laughs> for that reason because he like really inhabited that role of like the rich asshole and because I think what makes Batman better is the Robin. I think the, depends on which one. <laughs> Mm. there's one Robin that's the worst oh which one which one Uh, Tim Drake or Jason Todd no it's Tim Drake it's Tim Drake why does everyone hate Tim Drake so much because it's the worst (laughs) okay so Michael Keaton plays a washed up actor who's trying to be relevant again who is best known for a series of movies called Birdman in which he played the titular superhero it's kind of not very clear what Birdman actually was yeah I
0: wanted I I wanted to know what the powers were I I wanted to know if the the kind of powers he thinks he has in the movie is what Birdman could do. But then I don't know why he's called Birdman.
2: Maybe it's just like, maybe it's just because he was, like, a half-alien bird or something, but he also had, like, all these powers. That's my theory. I don't know. But, um, he's trying to, he's adapted, directed, and starring in uh, an adaptation of a novel on Broadway. Um, Zach Galifianakis plays his lawyer-slash-producer in what I think is just a stellar performance. I love Zach Galifianakis in this movie. Um, but... I guess to bring it back to the drumming, which is where this came off. <laughs> yeah. Um, to bring it back to the drumming, Alfonso Cuaron was working with this drummer beforehand. Like, gave him the script and had him um, had him come up with themes for all of the characters that they recorded demos of. And what they did to make sure that they got the rhythm right is they played the demos on set while they were acting, so that they could sync up the. Um, oh, the that's time. really cool. Yeah, well, it's kind of like what they did with um, Joe Wright's *Les Mis. So even
0: so, again, because I did read about this law, it was what they did when they recorded the demos was they were in the same room, and uh, the drummer had a script in front of him, and then you have to remind me of the director's name again. I have it. Oh, uh, it's because they're B2. okay. Yeah, whatever you just said, <laughs> they, he had this. They had the script in front of him, and they had hand signals for what was happening in the scene. Oh, so cool. they would do that while they were doing it. So then he would like, oh, the door opened. He would like put accents on it when they like opened the door and stuff.
2: Also, we haven't really mentioned this so far. Most of this is shot in such a way that it looks like one giant take. There yeah, are... I
0: noticed that. I told, <laughs> Beth- I asked Bethany if that was what they were trying to do. Yeah. How long did it take
2: you to notice that, Chris?
0: Uh, the first bar scene when it was when I was like. A, so said, like, like the entire in. like like 10, fifteen to twenty minutes in. Yeah. You know, yeah, but when it did
1: I, I ask you when we were watching it?
0: Like th- three minutes. Like, like well, like well, I don't know. I don't know when I really thought I like, realized it. Fifteen minutes in was when I was like, "Are they just trying to do this?" Like, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty clever. I, the
2: the, and the way they do, the way that you actually do that though is like you stitch it together when it goes like through doorways or by walls and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And you're able to stitch your scenes together. And but I think it was very well done, and I think it was no, I like the vibe oh, of it. Absolutely, it was absolutely great. And that opening, that first shot that you really see of him in a yoga pose and floating in his dressing room is incredible to me. I don't know, I I love it a lot. I love the way that the dialogue interplays with the drums. So, made me think
0: it was a real superhero movie at the very beginning.
2: I was like, "Cool, floating man." <laughs> I liked, but I liked it a lot because there's actually one point where there, uh, where Galifianakis and Keaton are having a back and forth, and the drums actually do drop out one second for the delivery of a punchline. Yeah, like I rewound that like three times to watch it over and over again because the timing was just so perfect to me like the closest thing that I've seen to where like music timed with like action on screen that perfectly and this is gonna sound really lame but way back when when the trailers were coming out for Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End there was like a scene where Davy Jones and Jack Sparrow were fencing on top of the mast and uh, the music timed perfectly with the sword hits and I was really mad because they didn't keep that in how are you gonna like, say that but movie. no
0: mention Baby Driver
2: <laughs> listen okay okay <laughs> We did just do an episode <laughs> on Baby Driver. <Dragon>. That's fair, <laughs> fair. But I'm talking about like s- composed score, oh, okay, not, that's like, that's not like sound. No, track. I got you there. You got yeah, that's, and that's why I think of it like that. Baby Driver is just like such its own thing to me. It's hard to even think about it on the same level. Okay, what do you have anything to say? Mm. What worked for you?
1: What worked for me? I think um, actually the scenes where they're doing the actual acting. Like on the stage. I love oh, that. Oh yeah, the play yeah. within the, the play. With, yeah. Uh,
2: and what I a good he, device.
1: Probably my favorite is when he, like, loses his robe and has to go all, re- all the way around. The- I'm like, how long is this theater? Like, how in the
2: world? Theaters are big. I well, guess. you go around a whole block. Yeah, because it's like, because, you know, you're on the edge of Times Square. Like, a, like, all those Broadway theaters open up onto Times Square, basically. And they so just go around the whole block. So mm. The whole city block.
0: Also, just because I did read all these interviews, and I'm going to keep thinking of things in it. When they did that scene, they actually did record the drums by like walking a mic around while someone else played drums. Oh, I that's thought so. It did band.
2: sound like a lot like that. Like, was this? They actually did it with like a spot with, mic. And that, they just like, walked away. Marching band, right? With the, with the drum line.
0: Oh, I just meant even the parts that are just the drums.
2: Oh, that's okay. how
0: they, you'll notice on that scene if you watch it again. The drums go like in and out. They actually like walked a mic around outside while someone like while he played.
2: Oh, like that scene cool. And stuff. Well, I like drums. <laughs> <laughs> A lot about this movie, though, was, like, the difference between, like, success and fame and, like, recognition and prestige and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, and, you know, high and low art in general because there's this entire, like, yeah. elitist theater world that he's trying to break into and, you know, you've got the Edward Norton character who is an actor who, only, who needs everything to be as real as it possibly can, which was just, oh, just so fucking good for me. Like, especially when you consider that Christian Bale is kind of a method guy
0: yeah
2: and like a lot of and, like a lot of like these popular people who are in superhero movies like work well within the method you know and it's it was interesting to see that um naomi watts in her interplay with uh edward norton too is like the couple that's like on the verge of falling apart like all the acting performances in this movie were oh yeah very good i mean we haven't even mentioned emma stone yet which
0: <laughs> probably in the top five for this film for me just Emma's, emma stone's presence
2: Emma Stone's precious Again, I like <laughs> did
0: not know anybody that was gonna be in this movie when I watched this. So when she showed up, I was like, "Now we've made it." Matt and Zach Galifianakis. Zach Galifianakis being there made, just like threw me for a loop for a second. Yeah,
2: because you well because a lot of the time we haven't seen Zach Galifianakis in necessarily. The, like, the
0: only things I've watched with Zach Galifianakis are The Hangover and Between Two Ferns, and I don't really. It. I do unless there's someone
2: forgetting he was in there. Have before. you seen like it's kind of a funny story or anything? No, I seen or, like.
0: I think there's something else I saw he was in. I just can't remember what it was.
2: No, Zach Galifianakis was really good in this. I I think that also, like, strides the boundary between comedy and drama very well, because you've got this, like... Dramedy. Well, yeah, you've got this psychodrama going on, where you've <laughs> yeah, got, um, I
1: mean, Not much of it is funny. Uh, Most of it's just, like, these people are... The like, opening,
2: like, 30 yeah. minutes are friggin' hilarious.
1: Yeah, I like the quick clips between um, Emma Stone and, I guess, Edward Norton?
2: Edward Norton, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of pretty funny stuff in that, and like the scene where the guy, where the drunk guy is on the street yelling the um, "to be or not to be" monologue from Hamlet, <laughs> and like that's played for as like sad, but that sad and funny at the same time because he's going into the liquor store to get alcohol, and then he walks by him and he sees that Riggin is there, he sees that Michael Keaton is there, and he's like, "Do you want me to take it a different way?" So it's just it is interesting to think about how some people.
0: Don't care about being known as a character their whole lives. And some people that would like kill them as an artist. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Because you know like, I don't know. I've been watching Friends a lot lately. You know that some of those people don't care that that's all they're known for.
2: Mm-hmm. Chandler Bing just wants that money.
0: That's all I'm saying.
2: Like, <laughs> David, I feel like David Schwimmer maybe cares a little bit more. Because like, he doesn't have to keep, he doesn't have to still be acting. He, every They're all making so much money on residuals from that show. Yeah. And yet, he did that, like, really good performance as Robert Kardashian in O.J. vs. the People. That was,
0: I did watch that recently, and I was surprised how good that was. Right? Actually.
2: That's, like, the best thing Ryan Murphy's <clears throat> ever done. He just, should just stop making things now.
0: I don't know, it's interesting, though. Like, I'm, I was trying to think of another actor that's, like, that c- kind of did what he did, and I couldn't think of one in real life. I mean, I know there are some, but I couldn't think of one off the top of my head real quick.
2: I mean, a lot of the actors that I think of who were like, it does happen for, a lot with like, superheroes. superheroes, yeah. like, even like Hugh Jack Hugh Jackman has been like trying to like shrug yeah, off the he, like, Wolverine, but he made for years. Wolverine him. Oh, absolutely, he did. About that. And the Ryan
0: Reynolds ones is funny because Ryan Reynolds has literally spent years wanting to be known as Deadpool, and he finally got there.
2: Yeah, but I mean, then let's think about um, let's think about Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. who um, that fa- that saved his career though. It saved his career. But, but
1: at what cost? And how much money
2: does he need to keep playing Iron Man over and, over, and over? Isn't he going to be done? Probably. Supposedly,
1: Supposedly he is.
2: Supposedly he is. <laughs> I thought he was about to die, and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to actually be sad about this." And I was actually sadder that he didn't die because I was like, "Damn it! I was ready. I uh, had prepared myself." Probably. Half of those people are going to die in the next one. Oh, or, or they're going to be sent off to... My theory is that they're not actually going to die, but they're going to be sent off to like a pocket universe of some sort where they get to live happily ever after. Good old Marvel.
1: That's really boring.
2: Yeah. Everything is canon in Marvel, though. That's the truth. So there's a lot that works. Um, <clears throat> like, I mean, I didn't even really get it, get into like the postmodernism of it all and the magical realism, which is... Well, let me talk about that. So magical realism is kind of a very Latin American storytelling trope and storytelling tradition. It's this idea of like sort of reconciling the folk tales of the old world with like the grotesqueness and uh, sort of with the uh, undiscovered qualities of the new world. It's uh, sort of a way of it it blends the old with the new and makes the magical an everyday occurrence. And I think that's sort of what's happening to Michael Keaton in this is that his character is going full magical realist because he believes that he has these powers and from the look of the viewer, he does have these powers. Like, the I think there's never really anything shown to contradict the idea that he has these powers either because...
0: Well, the, there is the scene where <clears throat> when he destroys the dressing room, that's when they imply that it's definitely not real. Cause is it? Because it, it transitions from him, like, destroying stuff by throwing it to when I think it's... Zach Galifianakis character comes in. He's actually throwing stuff. Hmm. I'm pretty
2: sure. I, might I
0: did, have to go I back don't, and I, don't know if, I don't know if I caught that. But. I'm pretty sure that's how it went, but I could be wrong.
2: But at the same time, why would Emma Stone's character be smiling if, she, if her dad was dead on the ground? Well, why would she be smiling? Wow. There's like three theories about this. Oh, have wow. you looked? You've looked up the theories. I do, and I agree with one of them. But. <laughs> listen, I think you have to come to it on your own. If you're, I read it from after I thought. About I read it. I read it after I thought about
1: well, it. Well, no, please share.
0: Let's see. <laughs> Well, the main three are that he died when he shot himself, oh, okay. that he jumped, and that he was never alive the entire film. Uh, and I actually kind, of, never agree, alive I kind of agree with that one. For How could reasons. that possibly oh, work? The idea for that one is that the whole thing is like the moment you die, like life flashes before your eyes idea is what that theory was. And I kind of like that one because I don't know why else necessarily they use the jellyfish so much. At the very beginning of the film and at the end.
1: Jelly?
2: Jellyfish? Yeah. What jellyfish?
0: They show the beach scene with the jellyfish.
2: It's not a jellyfish. Oh, what are they then? No, that I thought that was like a comet flying
0: through the sky. There's that and there's jellyfish on the beach. Both yeah. times. It flashes for like one frame in the mm-hmm. beginning of the movie. Okay. And then at the end they show it longer. So that's what the idea behind that was, is that the whole thing is just like a flashback. Because huh. one of the last things in the whole movie is that jellyfish.
2: Okay, now I think that is though a very like a very like kind of American take on things. Too. It could be because I, mean, I think we're ignoring the uh, genesis of the idea within. Like, sure, it's it is about like very American characters and things happening, but the genesis of the idea is from a sort of capital A continental American in a way. So this is this is something that's actually a lot of cause for a lot of discourse within like the Latin American community is that American capital A should mean anyone from the Americas not someone from the United States but that's not important right now um, I you see I, I read it more as like a magical realist tale about the man who learned to fly essentially like it's about, yeah, that, it's about yeah. like transcending your transcending your own hang-ups and boundaries and like transgressing against society's norms and realizing that if you are not constrained by the rules that you or if you and if you're not like being slavish to like some unnecessary doctrine you can fly essentially you can transcend in a way
1: see I didn't get that at all
2: well, well no because like look at Ed, Edward Norton's character he's so convinced that he has to live by these rules of the real he's like we have to do something real on stage I can't get it up unless it's real you know I can't do anything unless I am approaching the real, which plays a lot with the postmodern idea of the simulacrum. So the idea of the simulacrum is that we will eventually and not to sound like Elon Musk, but eventually there will come a point when reality will no longer be real. <laughs> and the sim and the simulation will be what we accept as real. Um, right there. And that's Okay, Elon Musk. Um, <laughs> the idea is that a lot of like art, a lot of entertainment, theme parks, things like that, it's all meant to be a reflection of the real world in a way, and a reflection of reality. But we are eventually approaching a point where that will become indistinguishable from reality. And if you look at what Edward Norton is trying to do, he wants to make his stage performance indistinguishable from reality. But because he's still playing by the rules of Broadway, I think that that's what makes him fail. I think that Michael Keaton's character, who essentially just ignores the rules completely, creates a real act, resulting in what the critic ends up calling hyper-realism. I think that's the moment of transcendence right there. There's there's a lot to be taken from this movie. What did you get from this movie? Do you, did I get too postmodern for you?
1: Uh, I don't know. That's a movie. I don't, <laughs> Do I don't have a lot. Well, okay, so usually the things that I like spot for in a movie are like, devices and like colors and things like like this movie didn't really have a lot for the things that i look for in a movie well
2: you like visual devices a lot the shot I, th- I think well
1: so for me like the best parts were when they were on the set in the at, at the show doing that their... and we're
2: seeing the construction yeah the
1: well and them just like feeding into the like they were all trying to go over the top at each performance like <laughs> they're like how can we top each other Basically, mm-hmm. and that was really interesting to me. And I liked the um, I liked the females that were in the movie. It was, it was a little like male centric, so that kind of yeah. bored me a little. So,
2: something that I liked too is that the they made sure that the the way that they cast yeah. the actors in know uh, <laughs> the way that the, they cast the actors within the movie in their roles in the play reflected their like real world relationships too, like the uh the ingenue that he's. That he's like dating and has apparently gotten pregnant. Or like he it got, looks like he he, he he got her pregnant. Um is the one who's like playing his wife in like some parts of the play. I think Oh, that
1: that was an interesting correlation, how the play was a reflection of mm. them in a way. That was See? like yeah. it's a simulacrum.
2: room. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, do you guys have anything that didn't work for you in this movie? I mean you talked about the
1: It was a little long. It was a little winded. It is a little long thought and it kind of seems like emma stone's character is just kind of thrown in there and doesn't have like a well true i'm not totally
0: focus. complaining but i actually agree
1: no but it, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no I, i'm not saying she shouldn't have been in there but it did it wasn't i feel like the, she should have had
2: did. a character arc that wasn't defined by the men around her because i feel like a lot of her character was about the it, end, it served like interactions it, with men yeah, i
0: felt her. like the only point at which she mattered if you will to the plot was when she like was the reason he was stuck outside and i was like okay After that, it didn't matter. And then that she came and saw him at the end. That was really all they used her for.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, she is herself more of a narrative device than a character. A lot of the women are more narrative device than character, now that I think Mm -hmm. about it. None of them have a
1: true, like... And kind of eye candy,
2: in a way, too. They kind of exist to comment on the actions of men. Which, I mean... And, like, service motivation for You could say
1: that that's kind of the way that some of this works, like...
0: Yeah, I think the only one that actually felt like a real character to me was um, whoever played his ex-wife actually felt like a character.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But if you want to can be consistent and do my fashion corner, um, Emma Stone did have a look.
2: Which one? Agreed. Oh, the uh, the eyeliner?
1: Well, yeah, I guess that, but... Emma Stone
2: a... is
0: kind of goth, GF. It's yes! Really <laughs> something I never knew I wanted. <laughs> um. She wasn't goth
2: GF, she was strung out GF. I said kind of goth GF. She has like
0: the makeup of goth GF and the outfit of Panic in the Disco GF.
2: I mean, it did also have like one of Bethany's like favorite kind of shots in a movie, which is two beautiful women kissing in front of a mirror. Is
1: that?
2: This is the moment you loved in American Hustle. It must must be what you love in all movies.
1: Must be. You heard it, folks.
2: It may be a moment that I like, too. Okay? That's the truth. We all have hang-ups. You can
1: just say the moment that I liked.
2: I thought it was... (laughs) You see, but it was for uh, bad reasons. For bad reasons. Yeah, bad
1: reasons.
2: (laughs) Now I'm trying to think what my favorite scene was. How you said
0: that.
2: I mean, I honestly think my favorite sequence, just like, minute for minute, liking it, is the moment from uh, when the light falls in the opening. When he uh, when when the light falls on the ceiling and hits the actor, I think it's the the hall uh, the hall man whole walk argument. And talk. I think that's yeah what I was the arguments too. up until right up until like right after Naomi Watts knocks on the door. the like...
0: Sorkin walk and talk argument to a drum
2: trick. <laughs> oh, absolutely, just fantastic. What do you think your favorite spot was? Was when it
1: they're, when they're doing the final uh, when it's like opening night? And, you know, he's got the loaded gun, and every move he makes, you're like...
2: Is he going to do it? it,
1: Yeah, it's very tense.
2: (sighs) It's probably my favorite part. And then, um...
0: I was so disappointed when he woke up in the hospital. I'm not (laughs) even joking. I wanted to just end there.
2: I will say, there was one... I think my other favorite moment is the classic farce scene of... uh, the, the, The classic farce device where they're talking about someone they don't know they're there, which is when Naomi Watts is talking to Edward Norton about... The, uh, about Emma Stone's character not knowing that she's Let's on the other side how of the, the dressing didn't room, because uh, the angle of the mirror. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's. You um... no, don't have anything
1: else to
0: say about. What did you? What were your thoughts about them at the end? Trying to sell the fact that he basically turned into Birdman, because that's what they were trying to sell. I thought, because with the nose thing, that's what the whole yeah. point of the nose thing is. Yeah,
2: I think it really worked because we become the monstrosities that we try to avoid.
0: Well, that was way deeper than I expected. you to say. I just didn't know if you actually liked it or not. I, I personally thought, I legitimately thought the movie should end when he shot himself and just leave it kind of, well, Not as, ambiguous is not the
2: right word, but. Well, I mean, I think what he did is he became, the shooting himself was ultimately a public performance, which means that he eventually does become the way the public sees him and the public sees him as Birdman.
0: Yeah.
1: it sounds like you wanted like more of a concrete ending then.
2: I don't know
0: about it being concrete, it just felt like, I don't know, the whole hospital thing felt forced to me.
1: I liked the whole beak idea.
0: Which makes me think of why people think, some people think that he dies, he actually shoots himself and dies. Mm -hmm. And and then the whole hospital thing is just like, the mind or whatever.
2: Mm -hmm. Well you see, I'm just thinking about the newspaper it's like hyper-realism and Zach Galifianakis is like, we're gonna make so much money off this, it'll run for years, you'll get slapped with a branching weapon, but you'll be fine. And it's just, I don't know. It's something that felt trite but accurate as to like the monetization of the real. It's see, looking at this from a, I wish you guys had taken as many postmodernism classes and studies as I had. Oh darn! I only took one. Wow, I didn't take. Looking at it from this perspective, and like do it's it's like I don't know. It seems very clear to me, but also I could just put this up in front of some of my classmates, and they would be like, "Uh, "Perhaps you're wrong." I don't know, there's just so much to unpack for me, but it's hard to do it. <laughs> this is why we're I want to
0: make a movie that's this nonsense and see what people tell me it's about. I'm not saying this is a nonsense movie, obviously. I just always wanted to do that.
2: Oh, you mean like I Am the Walrus? Kinda. Is that a movie? Well, no. What? So is there a secret I Am the it? Walrus, the urban legend, and I'm not sure if this was ever verified, was that they were like... No, it's never verified. That's yeah. what makes
1: perfect sense to me. I don't know what you're talking
2: about. I mean, the point of I am the walrus was that it would be uninterpretable. What? Yeah. 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 It had no meaning at all, supposedly. Which is why, like, later on the White Album, they make the joke. It's like, well, I've got here's a little clue for you all. The, wal- the walrus was Paul, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and boom, the Beatles have infiltrated our podcast now, too. <laughs> yeah. Isn't this actually a movie where, uh, again,
0: I always forget the dude's name that directed Didn't he actually yeah. answer a lot of questions about the movie? More than more so than most directors would? I don't know, because I didn't read any... I don't else. know, I, I like to read, I don't know, I like, when I watch a movie, I like to think about it for like an hour, and then go read about it. So I did that with this movie, and I just saw there were a lot of places where they say, like, he dished a lot about what he actually thought this was about. Mm, but you see, here's the thing,
2: authorial intent doesn't matter. What? I, I what? don't I kind of agree and kind of disagree.
1: Wait no, you're wrong.
2: Here's my best no. example of why <laughs> in, in, in in literary criticism. This it is not should literature. Matter. No. It should be no. some. No. Here's why. Because the intent of, because a a work of art may belong to an author, author when it's creative. Created It's not about what,
0: belonging though.
2: It's but the thing is you can take whatever meaning you want from it. And there's
0: a difference between taking whatever meaning you want and putting meaning on it. Those are two different things. Hmm. And my example of that is all the times that I read Great Gatsby in school and I had teachers that said every single color in this book means something. Which there's no way every color means something. It's so stupid. See, a lot of the green colors. means something and the pink and the what? white means
2: something. Well, green is envy and jealousy.
0: Like That's, that's what I'm saying. In, in that book, green means something. That's obvious. Yeah. He decided, but like when I took uh, AP Lit or whatever, I think it was AP Lit I had to do Great Gatsby in. This, I, had, I had a teacher that was crazy to the point she's like, now it's very important that these tints are blue and white striped. Because blue is representing this all throughout the novel, and white is always this, so we're mixing it. And it was like, every single thing that was a color, we had to stop and tell her why it was that color. That's not meaning. That's just like stupid. That's kind of where I'm coming from on it, is that I think people, and it happens a lot in music too, people just like push meaning onto things. Which is different than mm-hmm. interpreting meaning, like this makes me feel like this, or this is how I think this is, versus okay, like you see, this means this has to mean this because it, sometimes they do this. It's like, oh, it's you not- see,
2: I agree that this has to mean this isn't a thing, but I think, like, if you consider, I think what matters less than the intent of the author is more the context in which the work is produced. So, like, where does it stand as compared to other things of the same nature, and maybe where does it stand as compared to the author's work, but maybe because the thing is. Authors aren't reliable narrators. No, absolutely. They can say one thing and mean something completely different.
0: I also think it's different depending on the type of art it is. I think it's much easier to say that about film and books than it is, like, from my perspective, about music. Personally. That's kind of how I look at it.
2: Well, I mean, sure, for, like, composed music and melodies, but what about lyrics?
0: I I still think it's a little different. Mm -hmm. Personally. Because there's only, like, one or two places the theme comes from versus, like, Books and movies have a lot more areas you can get themes coming out. Like visually, you can do themes, and like color palettes can like be themes that kind of thing. I don't know. That's just how I always thought about it. Okay. I don't know. I, I I put I like to put a lot of stock in author intent because it feels more genuine than someone telling me like, "Well, this is what I think he meant."
1: Right. Like, I'd rather interpret what I think they meant yeah. for me to understand about it, not what they think has to be. I think that's a good way to put it.
0: Like I, I put value in what the author says they meant when they did it, and what I feel about it. But I don't want someone else. tell see, like, this is then, what I think it is. But then you, but then you,
2: you can get very. If you put stock in authorial intent, you know what you end up with? What the Star Wars special editions? That's. Okay, well, George Lucas—that is extrapolation of authorial well, intent. to I its natural I conclusion. think it's—I think it's crazy to call George Lucas an author. First off, <laughs> first off, yeah. To be fair, he stole—he stole all of it from myth, George uh, and, Lucas and curse He stole all of it from Kurosawa and Hercules. Uh, <laughs> George Lucas is an ideas man.
0: He's not an author. <laughs> That's
2: how I look at it. He's a super good yeah, ideas man. You like, can watch. You can watch the prequels and figure that out. Right. <laughs> Okay, do we want to rate it? So,
0: so what's the normal... I forget how it's, you it? It's, it's out, out of five. Out of five. But
2: it has to be something relevant in the movie. Guns? No. No. Scripts. Flowers that aren't roses. Noses?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Nose. Four out of five noses laying on a stage. Uh... That, that is that is, your That is my rating. My rating is a four. I think that it's... Four or four? Oh, I thought you said four and a half. Okay. Four. Yeah, f- four out of five. Um, I think it goes... It drags on a little too long. I think there aren't enough... Or I think the women don't have enough to do. And I think that there's a reason for that, but I still think it could have been done better. Do I... Am I happy that it won Best Picture of the Year? It won Best Picture? Yes.
1: What else was it against?
2: I can look. It up. Let's look it up. Best Picture 2015... Oh, man. It was up against a lot of... It was up against some pretty good stuff.
1: What? No. Yeah. And it won? No. Yeah.
2: No. It was up against Whiplash, well, Grand Budapest Hotel. Grand Buda Budapest Hotel. Which are pro? I haven't seen Selma. I need to see Selma. I haven't seen Grand Budapest Hotel.
1: <gasps>
2: <gasps> and I like Wes Anderson. Grand Budapest Hotel is his best movie. Oh, I just, so I like Wes Anderson. I just haven't seen, seen that one. We need to see Whiplash. That movie movies Yeah, it's slaps. The movie is so good. Does it does it slap a sneer head? That's not a good joke, but I yes. don't know. I don't know. That's yeah, I don't are there know any drums that you slap? No. You slap well, a yeah, djembe, right? Yeah, but
0: Whiplash is about jazz drumming, so... Okay, fine. I like Whiplash a lot. There
2: are djembes in jazz sometimes. Okay,
0: well, it's not that kind of jazz, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, yeah, so it was up against Whiplash, American Sniper, Grand Budapest Hotel, Imitation Game, Theory of Everything, Boyhood, and Selma. Was American
0: Sniper actually good...
2: I didn't see it, but I have—I doubt it could. Can be a movie about Chris Kyle, directed by Clint Eastwood, be good?
0: That's kind of where I was coming from. This yeah. is real gross. I All like...
1: of these are like male, like centric films. Um, pretty much. Okay, I mean,
2: but one of them is about Martin Luther King. Just because it's male, I'll,
1: I'll let him have that. Yeah, but he didn't win, so.
2: I
0: I don't know some of these movies.
1: I, the theory I, of everything is the. Um, no, Hawking? I saw
2: that one. I just don't uh, know
0: Grand Budapest. So I don't Grand Budapest. Century, century
2: Ray, Ray Fiennes is like the main guy.
0: Doesn't The Theory of Everything. Isn't it more about. I mean, no. it is about. Ste- oh,
2: okay. That's mm-hmm. how they sold it. That's bullshit. They sold it as being like. It, it is about his relationship with her, but it's more but about him.
1: And, and then at the end, you're like, wow, he's kind awful. of a shit person here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, Stephen Hawking was, was bad in that movie. Um, boyhood is about a boy. <laughs> I
0: didn't see it. <laughs> it's, I see that's it. less male-centric. That's just like growing up, oh, though. Yeah. It is a little bit different, I think.
2: And like, sure, I ga- I trying to understand. convince
1: me that I'm wrong about this no, no, no. no, no. Thing. I
2: don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. No, I don't. But either. the ambi- the ambition behind Boyhood was good. But I heard it must it was suck very to do a boring. movie for like
0: 13 years and they'd be like not win the Oscar. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> that must be like the ultimate. Listen, the like, best Richard Link- feels bad, man. The best <laughs> Richard Linklater movie is Bernie that's just the oh shit.
1: my god Bernie, Bernie. He, he's the guy who did
2: Bernie yeah I love that movie and also the guy who did School of Rock oh man well I love Bernie way more Bernie than is better than Ber- I, of I love frog. Bernie Bernie is one of my favorite movies
0: oh, I love watching Bernie with people that can't stand black comedy and they get like like actual black comedy and they yeah. get like I told someone that one time and they are like so is it like a Tyler Perry I was like oh,
2: no <laughs> I hate people like my that. dad loved Bernie the best part about Bernie is all the actual southerners that are in Bernie
1: like oh my god yes like the
2: actual people who are in the town
0: yeah. I just love watching like people that can't stand that kind of comedy like, this is the worst thing I've ever watched it's I mean, one of the I best feel so bad. one of the best movies ever it's like that movie and the other movie that people that aren't into movies always get weirded out is Becoming John Malkovich
2: I haven't seen Becoming John Malkovich it's so good it's but very some people postmodern, post-modern hate it. yeah it's super postmodern some people yeah. hate it I love that movie doesn't John Malkovich like go up into his own head at one point
0: yeah there's a lot of that <laughs>
2: Basically, this guy finds a door into John Malkovich's brain, and you can oh, be such a bad. stupid concept. No, this it's such a good. Bad. No, it's it's such a good movie. I don't know. About the concept
0: this. does sound so
2: bad on paper, but it's such a
0: well done movie. I love it. To
2: which I say, a movie about a washed up superhero superhero actor who's trying to do a Broadway show doesn't sound that great on paper either. Sounds better than becoming John Malkovich. <laughs> 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 to be fair. Okay, what are y'all's ratings?
0: Uh, I give it four out of five drumsticks. Oh. Because the soundtrack's really good, and I like how they did it, and it's really unique. And it, it's, it sells the movie really well.
2: There is, like, a video that somebody made. Oh, I, I would... Have you seen this? the video of the Always Sunny scene where Charlie's trying to talk That dude's about famous
0: them? for doing those videos, and I was going to mention that, but then you kept going, so I stopped. Yes, that's the other thing I think of, is that dude. That's a whole It's his whole YouTube channel.
2: Wait, the Antonio from... Birdman or No, a different dude. Different dude. But yeah, he does he does like sitcom dialogue with drums. And it's yeah, I'm it's gonna, gonna, I'll I'll gonna do this on yeah. Twitter. Dude, um he has a bunch. That's his whole that dude's whole YouTube channel is just
0: that. Nice. Okay.
1: Uh well I'm gonna be the downer, I think only three out of five. It's okay.
2: Three out of five what?
1: Beaks. Beaks.
2: Okay. <laughs> okay. Should I find out what we're watching next week?
1: What are we watching next Let week? Let me go look. Can we do my or bad drum roll next, that sounds really bad week. on the mic? Black Panther.
2: Black Panther.
1: Hey. Everyone go watch the sound... Um, not watch. Listen to the soundtrack right now. I
0: give Black Panther five out of five female scientists. Oh! oh. I give...
1: Wait, no, we can't rate it. I you Black- can't rate it. No. Okay, okay.
0: Oh, that wasn't my real rating. I'd actually have to think about
2: it. What y'all should do, what y'all should do though, is go listen to the really amazing... Song Exploder episode about, oh, about the, uh, Ludwig Gorenson writing the uh, Killmonger theme. Okay. And about, like, That's I mean, sick. just on the theme of music. Apparently, Ludwig Göransson just went to Africa and got a bunch of samples that he could write write the score around. It's just friggin' fantastic. Ludwig Gorenson, also, like, one of the main producers for Childish Gambino on, like, all of his work. So just... Just a great dude in general. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well... I think that's about it for us. We'll see you in two weeks for Black Panther. Bye. never how you knew it. Nobody looked at it that way you. Pocket Podcast
1: Network. Quality programming right to your pocket.